You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning, everyone. One more time, well, good morning, everyone. It is a joy to be with you, and it is always a joy to open God's Word. It's a privilege that I don't take lightly. I don't take lightly, not a right, but surely a privilege. And it is wonderful to be here with you this morning. So, we're in a series called Undivided, and that can get tense, right? Talking about race. Right? Had a couple chuckles, chuckles there, but a couple gasps. Right? Well, this morning I want to make a few qualifications, and then I want to just make a few promises to you this morning. So, a few qualifications before we get started. Uh, race is a global discussion. It's a global discussion. And I am an African American in America. So there's a global context that I'm not privy to. Luckily, next week, you're gonna get a, little, get a little taste of a more global perspective. But I have to be honest with you, uh, off bat, I'm an African-American from Northeast Ohio who uh, only because of the North Canton Ch Chapel has traveled outside of the country multiple times. But other than that, I might have never been on an airplane at all, right? So. There's a perspective. And second, as an African-American, uh, our perspective is not monolithic. So what that means is I'm sharing with you my perspective, right? I'm gonna share with you the perspectives of some that I've read, but I'm sharing with you my perspective. I, I don't represent all African-Americans as I speak here with you this morning. But with that, we're gonna dive into God's word this morning, sorry. A few promises here before we get started. Promise one, I'm going to be honest this morning. I'm going to be incredibly honest. And I'm going to be honest about the scriptures first and foremost. But I'm also going to be honest about my experience. So if you have any questions about that honesty, you can email them to matt at nchapel.com. <laughs> All right? <laughs> and second... And second, we're going to be hopeful this morning. We're going to be hopeful because even though this topic is dense and this topic is heavy, we can be hopeful because, as Dr. Micah just said, Jesus rose from the dead. So we can be hopeful as we discuss any topic, any topic. Amen? So let's dive into God's word this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 26 in Genesis chapter 1. Students, if you have your electronic devices, you can scroll with me to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. No worries, it's all good. You can turn with me or scroll with me. And when you get that, if you would, please, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. This is the creation narrative. And then God said... 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is God's word and this is true. You may be seated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form or darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. Then God said, and it, this is the Genesis narrative. Now, a few things about the Genesis narrative as we dive in this morning. The Genesis narrative is not an isolated creation text. What do I mean by that? The Genesis narrative is one among many ancient Near Eastern creation stories. So what that means is that the people who were alive around the time that Genesis was written also had their own creation narratives. There are African creation narratives about how the world came to be. There is a creation narrative called the Enuma Elish. It's going to be the Babylonian creation story or the Babylonian creation text. There's going to be Egyptian hieroglyphs that explain how they believe the world came to be. But let's, let's talk about this for a few minutes. The Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation narrative. This is going to start with not one God, but a plethora of gods. And the two gods that are going to be the mightiest in this text are going to be named Tiamat and Marduk. Now, Tiamat and Marduk are fighting to be the greatest of those gods. And in that creation narrative, the way that the worlds come into existence are that Tiamat takes a sword and splits Marduk in half. And as his guts fall out, that's how the worlds are created. In the Egyptian hieroglyphs, the way that the world is created is through what they call the Great War. The Great War. What they're saying is that the world is created through this great act of violence. But then we have the biblical narrative. We have the creation narrative. And in the creation narrative, what we're going to find is in the beginning, there is God. We know about this God. This God is three in one. This God is three distinct persons, but one unified Godhead, the Trinity. And we know that this one God, before there was anything, the text says, in the beginning, again, pointing at the fact that before there was anything, there was God. Now, this God creates. In the ancient Near East, the water was a thrope. It was a symbol for chaos. Now, in this Genesis narrative, what we find in the very beginning is this, that this one God in a peaceful act sees chaos, and the Spirit of God is moving over the face of this chaos. And then God says, let there be light. And then God says, let there be land. And God, out of the chaos, creates order. This is the God of the Bible. 
The God of the Bible is the God who creates chaos out, creates order out of chaos. The God of the Bible is the God who sees something that is out of order, something that is broken, and he fixes it. So God's going to see this chaos. He's going to see the water, and out of the water, he's going to call out land, and for the land, he's going to create animals, and for the sky, he's going to create birds, and for the sea, he's going to create fish, inhabitants to dwell within those habitats. But the crowning moment of creation and what makes this the most beautiful creation in this in the ancient Near East would have been the most scandalous verse that you could ever think of, we get to verse 26, which says this, and then God said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and every creeping thing up on the earth. This text is saying that the God who created everything, at the center of that is creating humans in his own image and in his own likeness. Let's give it up for the good doctor. So this God is creating everything in his own image and in his own likeness. This means that humans, in a different way than animals and in a different way than all of the rest of creation, bear the image of God. The ancient Quakers would say that humans bear the fingerprint of God in a unique way. So this means that every human, no matter who you are, no matter where you are from, or no matter what you have done, all humans distinctly bear the image of God. And because humans distinctly bear the image of God, this means that humans, every human, is deserving of dignity, value, and respect. Every human. Regardless of what they've done, regardless of where they're from, they deserve dignity, honor, and respect. I'm running forward here, but very quickly in Genesis chapter 4, after the fall of humanity, after humans say to God, hey, thanks for creating me, but no thanks for telling me how to live my life. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. And sin and brokenness enter the scene even after that. In chapter 4, when Cain literally kills his brother Abel, God still puts a mark on Cain so that no one will kill Cain. Because though Cain committed a sin, Cain is still created in the image and likeness of God. All humans are created in the image and likeness of God. But the reality that we live in is we live in a culture, we live in a world, we live in a reality that is broken and marred by sin. And sin breaks things. Timothy Keller, when he talked about sin, he said that there were four, four falls or four breaks that happened as a result of the fall. He's going to say that because of the fall, the relationship between God and man is now broken. But he's going to go on and he's going to say, it's not only that fall, but he's going to say, there's more falls. 
He's going to say the relationship between man and woman is broken now because of sin. So our relationships between each other are now broken because of sin. Eve points at Adam when God says, why did you do that? And blames him. And Adam turns back at Eve and he says to Eve, God, it's this woman that you gave me. Eve blames the serpent. Their relationship with each other is now broken. Their relationship with the world, their relationship with creation is then broken. In the curse, God's going to say, hey, you will work now from the sweat of your brow and you'll get thorns and thistles. Perfect garden to thorns and thistles. And lastly, the relationship between man and self is broken. They once were honest, but then once they realize that they've sinned, they cover themselves in shame. Brokenness. As we exist in a broken world and as we have a discussion about race this morning, we have to realize that we're broken people who live in a broken and sinful and marred world. And race, as we're going to come to find out, race is a product of that. It's a product of that. But as we do that, what I want to do is I want to, this morning, again, just demystify this idea for us a little bit this morning. So as we demystify this idea, we're going to look to Dr. Corey Edwards. She's actually a friend of mine, and she is a professor at The Ohio State University. So she's a doctorate in sociology, but the thing I love about Dr. Corey Edwards is she doesn't want people to call her Dr. Corey Edwards because she's a deaconess at her church. And she says that that's her greatest title. And that's her greatest feat. And I'm pretty sure she will be listening. So Dr. Corey, there you go. Deaconess Corey, there you go. So in Dr. Corey's book, The Elusive Dream, she writes about this vision of a multi-ethnic church. And what she's saying is this vision of a multi-ethnic church is not a 21st century invention. It's not something that comes from the imagination of the 21st century, but she's going to contend that this idea of a church where people from everywhere are worshiping together is not only a first century idea, but it is the idea of heaven. And she's going to say, in order for us in the United States to look towards this reality, where maybe when we're in areas that are not diverse— We can partner with other churches and do other things. But she's going to say, this can happen in the United States if we come to this truth and if we come to this reality, right? So she's going to delineate three ideas that I think sometimes we get mixed up. And I think if we can really delineate and understand these three ideas, then we can really demystify this American idea of race. So let's dive in a little bit this morning. Dr. Corey Edwards is first in this book going to talk about culture. Everybody say culture. Right? Culture is a word we often say, but sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, I say words and I don't really know what they mean. Like unless I'm talking about the Browns or like sports or something, sometimes I say words and I don't know what they mean. Right? Let's first talk about culture. Culture. Culture is the customs, values, and norms of a specific people group. Culture is the custom values and norms of a specific people group, right? 
we all come from different cultures because we come from different households. In our households, we have different norms, we have different values, we have different customs, right? On Christmas, when you get married, the difficulty of it sometimes is you have to go to a different home that has different customs and values, right? Culturally, at Christmas, my grandma's house is really, really loud. Everybody's arguing about something, but in our arguing, it's how we love each other. So we're all yelling, we're all loud. It's a very, very loud setting. At my wife's, it is not. At my grandma's house, there's about 40 people. At my wife's grandma's house, there's about six. And everybody's just kind of sitting around waiting to leave. <laughs> At my grandma's house, we're there all day. On Thanksgiving, I made a crucial mistake when I first started dating my wife. I went there and I seen a pie and I said, hey, I'm gonna have a piece of this. Surely this is sweet potato pie. And I take a big slice of it and my wife's grandma, sweet as can be, says, hey, why don't you take some whipped cream and put it on top? And I go, hey, I've never had whipped cream on my pie, but sure. And I take a bite out of it and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> because culturally those customs are different. Pumpkin pie and sweet potato pie are a little bit different if you know what I'm saying. But this is culture. This is culture, right? At North Canton High School, when I was doing student ministries here, I came in near Thanksgiving and everybody was really excited about Turkey Gravy Day. Do I have any in North Canton High School Hoover Vikings in here? Turkey Gravy Day, right? Still going? Amen. Turkey Gravy Day didn't happen in my high school. So I got, to, I got to be a part of the culture of North Canton and get excited about Turkey Gravy Day. This is culture. This is culture. And as we look at the scriptures, culture is celebrated. Scripture celebrates culture. All types of culture. The reality is that Jesus, God, and the second person of the Trinity enters the earth and incarnates through a culture. And this Jesus is not only going to incarnate through this culture, but this Jesus is going to exist within the rules and regulations of that culture. And as we flow more into the New Testament and as Paul commentates on the life of Jesus and teaches people how to live that out, what Paul is going to do is Paul is going to honor and lift up the different cultures of people. As we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to find Paul doing just that. Be on the screen back here. This is what Paul says. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people. Goodness gracious that by all means I might save some. 
I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. What Paul is saying is that culture itself, long as it doesn't hold itself above the gospel, is good. What Paul is saying is to the Greek, I become Greek. And what does he mean? When Paul is on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, what Paul does is Paul begins to quote Greek poets. So Paul enters into their culture so that they can understand the goodness of the gospel. When Paul is around his Jewish brothers and sisters, Paul is going to start breaking down the law in a way that no one else can because he's a Pharisee. Culture is good. All of our cultures are good. And culture brings people together. Culture brings people together. I got an invitation into Turkey Gravy Day here in North Kent, right? There's no Starbucks in my hometown. So when I came here to North Kenton, that's a part of North Kenton culture to go to Starbucks before Chipotle. <laughs> so I started doing that. But culture is good. The next idea that Dr. Corey talks about is ethnicity. Everybody say ethnicity. Ethnicity is when people groups from the same geographical area who share the same ancestry use culture to create a sense of we. Right? So when people groups from the same geographical area who share the same ancestry use culture as a way to create a we, right? A we. Ethnicity, right? Ethnicity. So we think about ethnicity, we think about folks who are from all around the world. When I think about ethnicity, I think about uh, my pal Gina Schmidt and her husband Mark down in Buena Vista, Guatemala. Think about the trips that I've taken there. And I think about how Gina and Mark, but Gina, I spent a lot of time with Gina in the MILKS program. We hiked to Tablone and just watching the way that Gina, who was outside of that ethnic group, but just watching the way that she was invited in, though she was from a different geographical area, right? But ethnicity is going to be this. I am African-American, right? But here's where ethnicity comes in. I'm an African-American from Northeast Ohio. My cousin Bill is an African-American from Birmingham, Alabama, where my family came from. We are vastly different. Though we look actually very similar, we are drastically different. Ethnically, or racially, we would be the same. We'll get to that, but ethnically, we're quite different. I come from Northeast Ohio, so on Sunday at 1 o'clock next week, I'll be doing what Northeast Ohio people do on Sunday at 1 o'clock. Cry. Cry. <laughs> Indeed, I'll be crying. But 
as we dive a little bit deeper into ethnicity, here's what we find. My wife is part German and part Swedish. Her grandmother is second, or sorry, her grandmother was second generation. So her grandmother is still very close to that German culture. So her grandmother beats meat and makes schnitzel. And it is delicious. It's awesome. Her grandpa, God rest his soul, wanted nothing to do with that. He's Swedish. He wanted nothing to do with that. Though we may look at the both of them and say both of them are white, our ethnicity runs deeper than what you can see. And the reality is there are people who are the same race but may be different ethnicities. Ethnicity runs deep enough to where people from this area can even be deeper ethnicities. My dear friend and a pastor at Citizens with us is named Skyler. Skyler comes from a town called Maslin. I spent a lot of time in Canton because I went to Malone. I knew nothing about this idea of Paul Brown Stadium and the deep, long-lasting tradition that exists there in the city of Maslin. I knew nothing about it till last year. I went to the Maslin-McKinley game there in Paul Brown Stadium, and I literally walked up, and it took, I waited an hour to get into the game. A high school football game. There was 22,000 people at that high school football game. There was a real-life baby tiger <laughs> on the football field. This is ethnicity. Ethnicity, my friends, is celebrated in Scripture. Scripture celebrates ethnicity. What you're going to get in Revelation chapter 7 is you're going to get a vision from John. And this is a vision where John is in the throne room. And here's what John's going to see. He's describing what he sees happening in the throne room of God. And this is what he says. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all the tribes, all the people, and all the languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palms and branches in their hands. This word peoples in the Greek is the word ethne. This is where we get our word ethnicity from. So what this text means is before the throne of God, in this heavenly vision, John sees people from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, and every tongue. So what John is saying is before the throne of God, the ethne, the peoples, is still distinctive. So what that means is before the throne of God, I'm going to still be brown. And talking about the browns. This is ethnicity. Scripture celebrates the ethnicity and the different ethnicities of different people. How do we know this? We know this because the book of John actually starts off after we get the prologue and after we get that beautiful spiritual moment. It starts off with this conversation between Jesus and two of his disciples that he's calling, right? The first two in the book of John. And before you get the words of Jesus, what you're going to find is this interesting little tidbit there. 
they say, what good can come from Nazareth? Little did they know that their salvation would come from Nazareth. And what we're going to find in the life of Jesus, and again, in Paul's commentary on the life of Jesus, is whenever we see ethnicity mentioned, man, he's going to raise it up. He's going to raise up the ethnicities of people. Ethnicity is celebrated in Scripture, and it's celebrated in heaven. Lastly, we've got race. We've got race. When we think about race, this is race. Race, so says Dr. Corey, is a social construct that assigns value to people based on what they look like. One more time. Race is a social construct that assigns value to people based on what they look like. Race, quite literally, is going to take a few phenotypes or a few descriptors, and race is going to say that these descriptors, so phenotypes, your hair, your hair color, your eyes, how they're slanted up or down, your eye colors, how tall you are, how short you are, these phenotypes are gonna determine your value. And again, this is a social construct. I can't stand up here and look through this book, the scriptures, and tell you that race is celebrated. Race, as it pops up in the scriptures, which it does, is never celebrated. Race, as a construct, does not invite like culture and ethnicity. Race creates an other. Ideology of race says because of the way that you look, you are other than me, you are different than me. And what it does is it says that your value is different than me. We find race pop up in the scripture most prominently. We find it in Genesis, but most prominently we find it pop up in Exodus. And what we find happening in Exodus is, after the miracle of forgiveness with Joseph and his brothers, a new Pharaoh comes who didn't know Joseph. And the people of Israel multiply at rapid rates. And when they multiply at rapid rates, they become a lot heavier and they become a lot more than the Egyptian people. So the Egyptian people say, because they are different, because they were not born in the same place as us, because they do not hold the same values as us, that they are different and they must be in slavery. After 400 years of silence, what we find is God call out Moses and we find God saying to Moses, hey, I want you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So where we find the Egyptians and where we find Pharaoh stepping up and saying, I am greater than these people, we find God stepping in and saying, I hear the cries of my people. I hear their oppression. Now go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Where we find race pop up 
in the New Testament, even after Jesus has risen from the dead, when we find it pop up in the church, as you heard last week with Peter and Cornelius, the Holy Spirit told Peter multiple times in a dream to go share the gospel with Cornelius and his household, but he didn't want to. Hear me because of race. And the Holy Spirit rebuked him three times. And when he went there, what he found was not only that Cornelius wasn't that different than him, but what he found was that the gospel, the good news that Jesus has risen from the dead is an invitation for everyone. And our brother Peter, who's having some more issues by the time we get to Galatians. We're going to find in chapter 2, you can read it for yourself, Paul is going to rebuke Peter to his face because he's trying to make non-Jews get circumcised in order to become Christians because he's taking his Jewish heritage and he's putting it up here and putting Greeks down here. And Paul rebukes him to his face. The gospel, I'm going to end with this, the gospel dismantles the sinful idea of race. It dismantles the sinful idea of the other. And instead of othering people, the gospel is an invitation. Paul, in that same letter of Galatians, is going to get to the end of chapter 3. And as he talks about the gospel at the end of chapter 3, as he talks about who we are now in Christ, that we're family now in Christ because of what Jesus has done for us. He stops at the end and says, now because of that, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no man or woman. There is no slave or free man. But now because of the gospel, we are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what the gospel does. It dismantles it. It dismantles it and it allows us to live into the pre-fall truth of the fact that every person is created in God's image. I got five minutes left. Here we go. <laughs> Bless up. Every person. And my friends, race is real. I grew up in a part of Barberton, a little town outside of Akron. And the part of Barberton that I grew up in, it was incredibly diverse. It was traditionally a black neighborhood, but uh, poor white folk had moved into my neighborhood too. And they relocated Bosnian and Serbian refugees in my neighborhood. So in my high school, we were all just there. And my mom would say to me often things like, hey, don't drive too far up that street. You'll end up in Clinton. Don't do that. And I'd go, mom, that was the 1960s. What are you talking about? These kind of things don't happen in the world anymore. Mom, like, my grandma would tell me stories. She's from Birmingham. She was born on the plantation that our family was slaves on. Whole deal. So they're telling me all these stories. And I would go, nah, 
That kind of stuff don't happen. Well, I went to college, and I went to an evangelical Christian school right down the street. And at this evangelical Christian school was the first place that I encountered racism. Not out in the world, but within evangelicalism. I had a work-study job on campus, and my first day of my work-study job, I'm going to work, I'm super excited, I'm washing coolers for the athletic department, but I was like, you know what, I'm gonna make a little money. Maybe buy some shoes or something, or some wings. So I'm happy, I'm smiling. I'm myself, I'm walking in. And as I walked into Osborne Hall, the football coach at that time comes out of his office, he storms out, and he starts yelling at me and cursing at me and telling me that I need to get my expletive to practice. And he's like screaming at me and I was like shocked, so I didn't say anything. And then he keeps screaming at me and I looked at him and I said, Hey, man, uh, I don't play football. And he turned beat red. And he walked away. I called my mom because I was trying to process what happened. And I was like, yo, this dude just started yelling at me. And my mom's like, son, it's because you're black on that campus. He thinks you're a football player. I told you not to go there. So then time goes on, and I'm there, and I make friends, and it's awesome. And I get an internship at this cool place called the North Canton Chapel with my friend, me. My friend, that's how I got the internship. So I'm here with my friend, Brummy, and we're doing cool stuff. And we start this retreat that still happens called Amplify. We're amplifying stuff, right? Yeah, we're amplifying stuff. And during the first Amplify, I was in a 15-passenger van with a bunch of students driving here at about 11 o'clock because we were having a midnight, uh, goodness, Nerf gun war here in the building. So I'm driving from a house in North Canton to here, and I pulled up on Whittier, and before I hit the stop sign, I seen these police cars, but I was like, oh, they're not coming for me. I was like, I'm going into the church parking lot, like, and I pull up into the church parking lot, and by that time, it was four cop cars surrounded the 15-passenger van here in the parking lot, right outside. And they came to the window. I rolled down the window. I said, hello, officers, how can I help you? And the officer said, what are you up to? And I said, well, uh, I'm an employee here, and we're having a youth thing tonight, and I'm going to head in the building here. Is that all right? And they said, no license and registration. And I gave them my license. Uh, it was the rental, so I like, gave them the rental registration. And they looked at it. And my address from Barberton was still on there, and they say, so you're, you live in Barberton? And I go, well, no, like, I'm in, I'm in college. Like, I'm here, but my address still says this. And I'm explaining it to him, and he says, get out the car. And I go, my goodness. And this is with the students still in the car. 
And I go, my goodness. I'm like, what's going on? And then he proceeded to give me a lecture on how I didn't work here. After that, we literally had to call the person who, a mentor of mine who was a boss at that time. I literally had to call him on the phone to come out of the building to say to the police, nah, he like works here and he's okay. And Dan Clancy was outraged. And he cared for me and we had a conversation after that. I say that to say that race is real and the effects of race in our culture are real, but the gospel of Jesus Christ dismantles that. And I believe a part of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God in the United States of America today is that we take part in that dismantling work of the gospel, that we present ourselves as people who do not buy into the ideology that because someone looks different, that they are other. But we challenge ourselves in what it means to let the gospel disrupt those notions that we have in our hearts so that we can follow the biblical narrative of inviting people into God's family that has people from every tribe, every kindred, every nation, and every tongue inside of it. Amen. I'm going to pray. Jesus, you are incredible. You're incredible. And Jesus, we thank you that your gospel disrupts and dismantles every system of sin. And Jesus, we pray today that more specifically as we talk about race, Jesus, I pray that it wouldn't be a point of shame for anyone. But Jesus, I pray that in your mighty and holy name, that it would be a call to action, that we would be a part of a gospel solution, not a cultural solution, but Jesus, a part of a gospel solution that dismantles ideology of othering, but follows your gospel and invites. We pray these things in your strong name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.